Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. You know what I mean? Um... And, uh, and it was fun. It was fun. I won't go into all the details. It was fun. So, uh, Will did a great job reading this morning. So, um, so thanks, Will. Uh, all right. So, um, we are, uh, man, we're in a section of scripture that those who have, uh, have been with us, uh, for some time, um, have some experience with. This is not the first genealogy that we've come to, uh, in the book of Genesis. Perhaps you've read through. Uh, certain genealogies in the past, we are um, we are provided multiple illustrations, examples of genealogy as we consider uh, the Bible as a whole. Uh, but genealogies can oftentimes uh, be seen as dry uh, or confusing. In fact, I think one of the things that most kept us engaged with Will's reading was whether or not he was going to continue to like pound it out. Right? It was like oh, we're listening with eager anticipation as to whether or not he's going to going to trip and, and fall or like run away, right? Like kind of what's going what's gonna to happen next, dry or confusing, right? Um, maybe even unnecessary, right? As we read through uh, Genesis chapter 36, um, you might be asking uh, yourself a, a question, uh, you know, why? Like, why are we, why is this here? What is this, what is this for? Um, genealogies can a lot of times uh, feel unnecessary if we are um, unfamiliar with their purpose, this isn't an idea that's altogether new to us. We experience it and see it in other areas as well. In fact, I want to illustrate this to you um, for, for just a moment. Um, I want you to consider uh, a phone book, okay, um, which I feel like even in asking you to consider what, like, a phone book, I need to then explain what a phone book is because I'm not sure those are even, like, things anymore, right? Um, and so uh, allow me to do a, a brief explanation of what a phone book is, right? Um, you see, before we had these um, phones and there was this comprehensive, uh, with these comprehensive lists of people we know with their contacts and their emails and their phone numbers, multiple phone numbers, right, um, um, that we go back and delete now because nobody has a home phone anymore, and so there's no reason for that. So we just get rid of that one, and then it's it's cell phone. You guys are kind of kind of following along. Before we had this, there were these books, right? Um, that were uh, they were thick, and they were periodically like delivered to your house by someone. I don't even know who. What happened to the phone book people? I'm not sure, right? What are they doing now? I'm not entirely entirely sure. But they would bring these books uh, to your house, right? And you would open them up, and inside, what did you find? Like people, right? You found like names and, and addresses and, and phone numbers, right? And so used to, uh, if you needed someone's phone number, right, or if you needed to know, know where they lived or whatever, and you didn't have like a black book that had all of this in there, you had to go to the, to the phone book, right? Um, and you had to, you had to go and, and look and say, okay, yeah, Jacqueline Eves. Let me find Jacqueline Eves in the phone book. Okay, here's Jacqueline Eves. Let's check and see if this is her phone number. Is it still working? That's kind of the way it, it works. We're familiar with this, right? Like, this isn't like uh, an altogether like unfamiliar concept. Okay, so um, phone books 
are unique in purpose, right? Now, um, we go to phone books and we acquire information from phone books and it's really valuable, especially when you need it, right? Like if I needed to get in touch with someone and I didn't have this, I would really need the phone book, right? In fact, there were homes with drawers designated to the phone book, right? Like um, you had the phone book in the drawer and you pull it out and you, and you, and you go to it and you look, right? Um, so they were really helpful, and they served a really specific purpose. Um, but if we attempted to use or read a phone book in the same way that we read something else, uh, we would find ourselves like frustrated, right? Like we would find ourselves um, questioning, like, like this doesn't appear to make any logical sense, right? If you were working your way through the Lord of the Rings series um, and you're reading through it and then you set that aside and you go, okay, let me give the phone book a try, right? And you open up the phone book, it would be really confusing, wouldn't it? If you tried to read it the same way, it would, you would become really frustrated and it would just seem like a bunch of gobbledygook and you wouldn't make it very far at all and you would just kind of, you would kind of close it, right? Um, this is the same way I think that we approach genealogy sometimes. All right, like we approach genealogy, um, this, 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 this really interesting, beautiful, essential part of God's word in a way in which we are ill-informed. Um, and so we oftentimes don't read it as it was intended to be read, right? This is here, right? Genesis 36 is here in the same way that Genesis 37 is here. Now, next week, when we look at Genesis 37 and we begin exploring this very familiar character study uh, that is Joseph, right? We go, ah, I'm familiar with this. This is really important. There are a lot of lessons that are, that are valuable and to be learned and gleaned from, right? But let's remember that Genesis 36 is here too, right? And so in the same, on the same pages, right, in which we find Joseph in Genesis 37, we find Genesis 36 and this listing of Esau's descendants, right? It's, it's valuable and it's here for a purpose, um, and so we need to understand the value uh, and, and the purpose of genealogy in general in order to best understand the value and purpose of this specific genealogy. And so we're going to tackle this thing in two sections for just a moment, okay? We're going to, um, we're going to answer the question, why genealogy? Okay, and then we're going to answer the question, why this genealogy? So we're going to talk about genealogy just in general first. Like, why is genealogy important? Why should we, on our read-throughs, not just come to the genealogy chapters and go, wow, Wednesday, off day, right? Like, not reading today. Like, no reason to tackle this. Um, why should we lean in and engage and what should, we, what should we glean as we come across these valuable and important parts of God's, uh, of God's word? Um, so why genealogy? Is that a question that you've asked before? It's probably a question that you were asking as we were reading. In fact, maybe Will was asking that question, right? As he was reading, like, why? Why is this happening? Why is this a thing? As Will was reading, I was like, wow, we're halfway there. Like, we're only halfway there, right? Like, keep going, keep trucking. You can do it. I was praying for Will as he was reading this morning. Why genealogies? Two, two things that I want us to highlight in the beginning. This is going to feel a little bit different today, okay? It's going to feel a little bit different than, say, last week or, say, next week. But I, I think, feel like this is going to be really valuable. So, um, number one, why genealogies? Here we go. Genealogies serve to move the story along. 
Why do we have genealogies? Why is Genesis 36 here sandwiched between what we know as Genesis 35 and what we know as Genesis 37? Why do, we, why do we have them? What purpose do they serve? Well, they serve to move the story along. Let's be clear, okay? The, the primary purpose of everything that we see and read here is Jesus, Okay, the, the, the primary purpose of everything that we see and read here is Jesus. This is all about Jesus, and it is all leading us toward Jesus. Genealogies are one way that the biblical authors can move us forward in time, right? This is a thick book. If you've, if you've ever participated in a, in a read-through, you know that, right? Maybe you take a year, maybe you take two years, maybe you're feeling like super ambitious and you take six months and you say, I'm going to read through, right? You realize fairly quickly that this is a thick book. And we don't have all of the details, do we, right? There's a lot that has happened over the course of redemptive history that is not contained within this book. Right, And so why do we have these genealogies? Well, because we've got to move the story along a bit, right? It's, it's all about Jesus. It's all, it's all leading us to Jesus. And so, so the biblical authors oftentimes leverage genealogy to move the story along while at the same time explaining certain things that have happened that the audience would have known about, but they don't necessarily know why, right? Um, there's, a real, there's a few examples of that in, in Genesis 36, um, how particular people got into specific places and, and why Esau left in the first place. We see in verses 7 and 8, their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. Now, we can, we can get into all the questions as to whether or not... Um, like that was the, 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 the real the reason that there was a separation, that there was a leaving that took place. Uh, but we do see Moses, as he writes here, uses this portion to explain Esau's settling in the hill country of Seir, right? How did we get here? Like, how did this happen? The biblical authors are moving the story along. That's number one. Number two, genealogies, in addition to moving the story along, oftentimes also serve as bridges, they serve as, as bridges. For example, between Genesis 35, that is God's blessing and renaming Jacob, and Genesis 27, the introduction of Joseph, we have this list of the generations of Esau. And again, the question that we are most naturally asking ourselves is, is why? In light of this, as we consider the writing of Moses as a whole, we realize that this is a common practice that he oftentimes leverages. This is a, a writing technique that Moses leverages in a number of other places as we read through his writings. He does the same thing in Genesis 25. Right, if, we, if we look back and we see Genesis 35, we see this list of Ishmael's descendants before transitioning into Genesis 26 and what we would refer to as this major section on the life of Isaac and God's work and accomplishing his mission through he and his family. Right, so we're, we're, we're bridging the gap a bit. We're, we're talking about, okay, here's kind of what happened with Ishmael, and now we're transitioning into this ma next major section of of Isaac and then Jacob and Esau, right? There's this transition that takes place. It serves to, to bridge the gap. There's a, there's a teasing out, if you will, of sons, the one whom the promise will flow and the one whom it won't. Ishmael, before moving on to Isaac. 
right? Esau before moving on to Joseph. This bridge, right? It transitions us into the next major section in the book of Genesis. In this case, the last major section of Genesis, at which point we go, holy cow, we're almost there, right? Did you feel like this day would ever come? Like we're still a ways, okay? Let's not get car before the horse here. We've got a ways to go in Genesis still. But we're, we're bridging the gap now into this last and final major section. If we consider the way that we observe this in other places, Matthew does something very similar in his gospel. As you open up to Matthew chapter 1, we begin with this genealogy of, of sorts. As Matthew connects the Old and New Testament from Abraham to Jesus. There's a bridging of the gap that we observe taking place. So genealogy is what? Number one, they move the story along, right? We're answering the why behind genealogy in general. Genealogies move the story forward while serving to, in some cases, transition between major sections. That being said, what's the next question? Well, the next question is why this genealogy? Okay, great. Like, that helps us to understand um, how we ought to approach genealogy as we come to it in God's word. But why do we have this particular genealogy? Genesis 36 accomplishes a number of purposes for readers. First, Genesis 36 serves as a warning for us. And we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about this. Genesis 36 serves as a warning for you and I. At which point we go, okay, I don't know if I was connected up into this point, but now you're talking about something that I'm really interested in, <laughs> right? Like now you're drawing me in. What, what, what do I need to be warned about? We'll talk a little bit about it. Second, Genesis 36 serves as a source of encouragement for you and I. So there's a, there's a warning to readers, and then there is this source of encouragement. What I want us to do over the next few minutes together is to, is to try to unpack this as best as we can with the time that we have. So um, let's get started. Genesis 36. All right, Genesis 36, when combined with the rest of the narrative on Esau, warns readers to approach this older brother correctly. Right, to understand Esau, right? I think we're um, almost coming to this pause point in which we look back and we go, what have we learned about, about Esau up until this point in the story? We want to approach the older brother correctly or we run the risk of disconnecting from the transformational intent of Genesis 36, which is a thing, right? Like there is this transformational intent for you and I as we approach, come to, and out of Genesis 36. If we don't approach the older brother correctly, there is a danger that we will disconnect from the transformational intent. Not only that, but we will discourage our connecting material prosperity with spiritual blessing, which is desired. We want to see this discouragement take place, right? We, we want to approach the older brother correctly, and then we want to see this discouraging of connecting material prosperity with spiritual blessing. You say all of this comes from Genesis 36 and the descendants of Esau? Yes, absolutely. Let's look back for just a moment. Right In Genesis 25, we find Esau acting impulsively. 
In Genesis 25, we find Esau selling his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of soup. We cannot approach Genesis 36 in isolation. We have to consider the life of Esau. So we consider Genesis 25. We are brought to this realization that this is indeed a fatal character flaw by Esau. And one that we should consider, given that Esau looks less like a morally compromised genocidal dictator and more like you and I. Okay, this is, this is what we're encouraging, a right approach to Esau and his character. We see through his despising of his birthright, Esau's rejection of God's prolonged work among his people. Esau desires something that you and I are familiar with, okay? Esau desires something that we observe in the world around us. I'm going to take just a few moments, and I'm going to build this case in a minute. Esau desires immediate gratification. This is the character flaw that we're addressing in Esau. This is the character flaw that has been being addressed in Esau. We hear that, and we connect with it. We connect with this idea of immediate gratification. Why? Well, because this is the time in which we live, right? This is the time in which we live, and let's just be real. There is no putting the genie back in the bottle, right? Like there's, there's 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 no going back. Esau's sin is one that we are able to identify with. Again, allow me to illustrate this for you as we do a quick survey of cultural and generational practice. I was reading an article this past week about, um, and I, have, I could not tell you, it was a reputable source, but I couldn't, I couldn't give it to you off the top of my head. But it was basically, it seemed as though it was an author written, uh, it, was a, it was an article written um, to uh, like employers, bosses, right? If you were a business owner, this would be a very, a very profitable article for you to read. If you were in charge of managing people, this would be a really profitable article for you to read. It basically talks about the distinctions of Generation Z and what you ought to expect as an employer now employing this like graduating generation. Listen to what the author writes. We make a a number of connections here. So hang with me in the beginning and then we'll really begin to pick up steam. It flows, okay? Gen X grew up with fast food. Millennials enjoyed fast entertainment. For Generation Z, it is instant everything. Instant information, instant communication, and above all, something that we are connecting with the character of Esau here, instant gratification. Now, is this new or unique to Generation Z? No, it's not. It's just that we live in a more instant world now than we ever have. Gen Z consumes more convenience items than any other generation, viewing them as necessities rather than luxuries. This is going to sound a bit in the beginning like we are just teeing off on Gen Z, but we're not, okay? So if you're Gen Z, chill, okay? Because we're not teeing off. We're just acknowledging some things, some things that we all need to acknowledge about ourselves. It's not that they're lazy. They simply see convenience as the driver of efficiency and technology as the vehicle that will get them there. Much of the demand for convenience stems from the fact that nearly half of Gen Zers are true digital natives. Now, I want you to consider what that means. 
right? Perhaps you're a, a native of this area. Perhaps you're a Carroll, a Carrollton native, right? You're a native of our town. You're a, a Carroll County native, right? What does that mean? It means like you've lived here. Like you're from here. You were born here. You were raised here. Like you know this area. You know this people. You connect with it or you don't know anything outside of it with the degree of intimacy that you know this area, right? So what we see here is that there is this statement that says, that reminds us that we have a generation of people who are natives to the digital world, right? Having grown up with smartphone in hand, they are connected more than 10 hours a day and receive more than 3,000 texts a month. Is anybody iPhone user in here? Are you getting these things that tell you your usage right now? Holy cow, how depressing is that, right? Um, Really depressing. Gen Z has never known a world without Google, Facebook, or high-speed internet. They've grown up with constant streams of data and instant access to information. Instant gratification is their modus operandi. Self-reliance and short attention spans make Gen Zers impatient. Whereas previous generations were used to waiting 10 minutes for their PC to boot, amen, These employees don't like waiting for answers, even from management, any more than they like waiting in line. And they especially hate waiting for an app to load. This generation has a need for speed and expects technology to work at the click of a button or the tap of a screen, says Information Age. Eight in ten expect mobile apps to transact in three seconds or less. And it's no wonder, considering they switch between devices and platforms 27 times an hour. We read this and we go, man, what an indictment on Gen Z. Y'all are sorry, right? And then we go, wait a second. I mean, this is the world we live in. Like, this is where, this is where we are. Had we had the same technology at our disposal, like, we would be the same way. Why? Well, because we're diagnosing something about the human condition here, right? Like, it's, it's drawn out and it's highlighted and it's emphasized as we read statements like these. But what we come to realize as we consider these statements, as we consider what we are looking at here in Genesis chapter 36 and this character, this final character study of, of Esau, is that this is how we work, right? This is how you work. Instant access, instant gratification, What we realize, however, is we consider the place of of Esau in this story and all of his character flaws is that this is not how God always works. God and his work is often seen as slow, but it should never be seen as unintentional. This is true for the life of Jacob and Esau, for Joseph who would come after him, for the whole story of redemption and for you and I. What we are seeking to accomplish by way of reading this excerpt and considering these truths is our connection with the sin of Esau. We made the distinction in the beginning between, between Esau and some genocidal dictator because I think what we often tend to do is to lump Esau into a category in which he does not belong that makes us a little bit more distant from his sin operating at a safe distance then from the transformational intent of Moses as he pens Genesis 36. 
In Genesis 30, Genesis 27, we see Esau's anger rear its head as he plots to murder Jacob in response to his stealing his blessing from Isaac. What would follow would be a 20-year estrangement of his relationship with his little brother. If you've been here with me for some time, you're like, yeah, we're hearing this every week. Good news. This is the last week, and then we're moving on to the next, to the next section. Let us be really clear. Esau has acted sinfully, right? making a, a number of poor decisions. This was a trend early in his life, and as we observe from chapter 36, it is a trend that would continue. Allow me to, to summarize what we see in Genesis 36. I'm not going to go back and reread the whole thing, right? We've already, we've already tackled the names. What does it mean, Will? Here we go. In verses 1 and 2, we find the convictions of Esau's family rejected as he takes for himself a number of Canaanite wives. That's what's going on in verses 1 and 2. As a result, Esau finds his descendants cut off from the chosen people. We find through the genealogy of Esau and his descendants that intermarriage becomes increasingly more popular and accepted between the descendants of Esau and the native people, leading Esau to have found himself married into a leading family in the region. All of this, as we consider the historical place of Genesis 36, would give way to a violent invasion and absorption of the native people into the populace of the descendants of Esau as assimilation moves to another level in verses 20 through 30. I just summed it up there. Right? What do we what do we see? We we find this this new um, this new normal being embraced. Right, we see a, a rejection of uh, of what we referred to as um, as as uh, the convictions of Esau's family. Invasion, like this this blending taking place, this removal from and cutting off from the chosen people of God. There's a lot going on in Genesis 36. Esau's sin and its, and its after effects are on display as we see the story move forward. That being said, it would be a mischaracterization to label Esau. Listen to this. It would be a mischaracterization to label Esau as morally evil in the same sense that we oftentimes define moral evil. Allow me to to unpack that for just a moment, okay? The danger in mischaracterization is our inability to, as a result, relate with Esau. We, We separate ourselves from him and his sin as he is, for whatever reason, presented as this ethically rebellious, compromised character in a way in which we too are not ethically rebellious and compromised. Bless you. We elevate 
Esau's sin to a point that we are able to rest comfortably beneath this high watermark that he sets, finding ourselves consequently unchallenged by what we see here in Genesis 36. A warning that we receive through Genesis 36 is not to do this. (laughs) We observe it not only through Genesis 36, but through Genesis 33 through 35, as it is made clear how we approach Esau's character in order to avoid this. Jacqueline and I were having a conversation a few weeks ago, maybe last week, about Esau. And about the ways that I, the way that we see and, and understand Esau have been changed through this portion of Genesis. And Jacqueline made the statement that um, that she I think that I got it about right here. This is the this is the general idea, right? Um, that she had never seen Esau this way before. That is forgiving, engaging, and even humble in some some really. Incredible ways. Let's consider them for just a moment. Number one, forgiving. How have we observed Esau's forgiveness, right? Esau is forgiving. It's observable through his warm and emotional greeting of Jacob as he enters back into the promised land. Evidence of God's work of grace in his heart and a point of hope for for anyone in this room feeling the weight of strained or broken relationship. Friendships, marriages, does not matter, right? Hope for God's work of grace to transform the heart and restore what seemed at one time to be beyond repair is evident through this exchange between Jacob and Esau. Not only do we see Esau's forgiving nature, right? An element of forgiving nature displayed, but we also see Esau as engaging, right? He expresses notable, noticeable interest in Jacob's family before inviting him to travel back with, to Seir with him. Forgiving, engaging, and lastly, humble. All right, we see Esau initially declining Jacob's offering of gifts, an act that, to me, bears the marks of genuineness. In no way does it feel like one of those, oh, no, 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 I couldn't possibly take all of these gifts. Okay, quit twisting my arm, I'll take it. Right, there's this, this genuine feel that we get as we read through this exchange. Even when he does accept Jacob's offer, it seems as though this is a gracious act in order that his brother's debt had been accrued all those years prior might be considered paid. Listen to what Alexander White writes of Esau. He says this, he says, Esau was full of the manliest interests and occupations and pursuits. He was a very proverb of courage and endurance and success in the chase. He was the ruggedest and the brawniest and the shaggiest of all the rugged, brawny and shaggy creatures in the field and of the forest, among whom he lived and died. Esau had an eye like an eagle. His ear never slept. His foot took the firmest hold of the ground and his hand was always full of both skill and strength and success. Esau's arrow never missed its mark. He was the pride of all the encampments as he came home at night with traps and his snares and his bows and his arrows and laden to the earth with his venison for his father's support. 
burned black with the sun, beaten hard and dry with wind, a prince of men, a prime favorite, both with men and women and children, and with a good word and a good gift from the field for them all. Esau, the life of any party. In many ways, the epitome of manliness with certain characteristics to be admired, desired, and emulated by men. In Esau, we find certain attributes of manliness that are in many ways demonized by culture and in need of deep consideration by the church. We find upon careful observation that Esau is far from the villain that he is so oftentimes considered to be. Getting this drives you and I to hear the heart of God's desire for transformation from this text. We ought to relate with Esau. We ought to see ourselves and our own tendencies in Esau, connecting with his flaws because they are our flaws, connecting with Esau's sin because Esau's sin is our sin. What you and I are in need of considering are the ways in which our own natures lead us toward Sin, Because the reality is that this is not a new or dead issue. Kent Hughes writes the following. For every generation, the challenge is the same. Gen Z, Gen X, right? Wherever you find yourself in this room, the challenge is the same. To see that there is more to life than a meal or baseball or a party or a movie or an indulgence of some kind. That life is more than that. And when these things become our everything, right, or, or our desires for immediate gratification take lead, the consequences are obvious. Let me give you a historical survey of Esau's descendants, observable here through Genesis 36, that reveal rising tensions, hostility between the Edomites and Israel. Listen to this. This is incredible. As Moses led Israel's exodus from Egypt, the Edomites, Genesis 36, would refuse passage through their territories. We can read of this in Numbers chapter 20. Tensions are rising, right? Identifiable Esau, right? Now, as as things begin to trickle down, more and more evil begins to show its head. When Saul became king over Israel, he found himself engaged in combat against the Edomites. You can read of this in 1 Samuel chapter 14. King David found himself at odds with the Edomites. And perhaps the most well-known documentation of their abuse of God's people came during Israel's deportation to Babylon, in which the Edomites intercepted escaping Israelites and refused them asylum or passage, choosing instead to deliver them back to the Babylonians. However, it doesn't stop there. As we jump forward into the New Testament, we find 400 years of God's silence broken as Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is born of a virgin in the city of bread, becoming the target of an Edomite king named Herod. 
feeling the threat to his throne from the messianic king, consequently exterminating all of the male babies born in the region in this attempt to secure his crown. Do we really need to continue constructing a case right, for the dangers of severe short-sightedness, that which Esau has been guilty of from the beginning? Do we really need to continue constructing our case of the dangers of fleshly pleasure and immediate gratification acting as one's guiding light? I don't think so. As we consider the character of Esau, what I want us to to do is is to embrace the warning that any type of of moral separation that we desire to create between Esau and ourselves is at our own peril. To elevate Esau and his sin to this level in which we are able to rest comfortably beneath and go, well, at least I'm not Esau, would be dangerous. Because what we find as we consider the character of, of Esau on display through this section, as we come into Genesis chapter 36, is that normal, everyday character flaws that we are able to identify with, that we are familiar with, that we are in need of repenting from, are present in the life of Esau. And it produces just this wave of chaos and destruction. We can identify with Esau. We ought to be warned, right, not to separate ourselves, but to to dig up and to pluck out any root of sin observable in Esau's life that begins to take and change our own. The blessings that we see in our lives are by themselves not sufficient proof that we belong to God. What we find as we consider an Old Testament survey of the Edomites running alongside, contrasting with the growth of Israel, is that Edom, the Edomites, take an early lead, right? And and it looks initially, it looks for a moment as though there is this, there is this, uh, there is this, this, this blessing of the Lord, right, on the Edomites in a way in which God's people are left lacking. But what did we say in the beginning is that God works slowly, right, many times. I bet you're familiar with that right? Methodically. And there's this danger to, uh, from an Edomite perspective, from our own perspective, to observe the blessings that the Edomites receive and the growth that they experience and go, wow, look, sin prospers and evil prospers and disingenuousness prospers and the way of the flesh prospers. Why not? Surely this is the blessing of the Lord. And while it is indeed a gift of grace, it is not worthy of our own practice. Esau was blessed and was yet shown to lack faith. Right? True devotion to Christ is shown in our repentance from sin. Esau is the life of the party. Attributes that are, that are admirable in many ways. We see humility. We see engagement. We see generosity. We see care. But we don't see repentance. We see the sin that we're able to identify with. But from Esau, we don't see 
God's desired response for the rebellious, that is to turn from our sin and to trust in him, right? to look to him and to, and to worship him and to enjoy him. True devotion to Christ is shown in our repentance for sin, right? The fruit we have in our life and our faithfulness in the task the Lord has given us. We must, as God's people, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is, this is what we see in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. The discouragement for you and I is to separate ourselves from Esau to the point that we are unable to see our own need for repentance. The encouragement that we see, not just here, but as we consider a survey of the Old and New Testament, is the faithfulness of God in Christ Jesus to receive the repentant, to restore our fellowship with God. And to save us from the wrath that we deserve, right? To save us from the punishment that we deserve. We see this encouragement. Not only that, but we see this encouragement that, um, of thought. We see this encouragement of thought in that, that, that worldly success and material prosperity does not always equate, right, with, um, with the blessing of the Lord, right? There's this consideration that you and I make and we look around and we go, okay, what does it look like to truly follow after Jesus? And then am I okay with that, right? Am I, am I cool with that? Even when it seems as though there is this, this passing that is, that is taking place. I think the call from Genesis chapter 36 is really simple. And Paul articulates it beautifully in Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2 in which he says, Seek the things that are above, not the things of the earth. Right? Seek the things above, not the things of the earth. We flee from laziness. Right? We, we flee from disconnection. The things that come easy, choosing instead to give ourselves to Christ and the word of God. Desires echoed by Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Allow me to read an extended portion of Ephesians chapter 1 as we kind of begin to, to land this thing. Listen to, what, listen to what we see from Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. He says, In him, being Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, which he continues to do here. Right in Genesis chapter 36, that he continues to do as the story progresses. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Happy Pentecost Sunday. Verse 14 who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17, here we go. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glory?
glorious inheritance in the saints, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God never fully satisfies us in this world, but instead constantly stretches our desires toward him. God stretches our desires toward him. God's presence with his people is most evident through the expansion and and purification of our holy desires. Let us consider this as we close out our time and prepare to come to the table. Let us consider the way of the flesh and let us consider the work of the spirit. The way of the flesh is that which is observable through Esau. However, the gospel displays this incredible power to temper our desires for instant gratification, fostering instead commitment to Christ. Did you get that? This is so incredibly important. Let's, let's close with this. This is what the gospel does. Are you ready for this? Okay, the, the gospel tempers our desires for instant gratification. So if you're sitting here and you're going, wow, like all of the ways that I am pursuing after instant gratification and the ways of the world and the things of the flesh and seeking satisfaction and the things that are not ultimately like of primary importance, how do I see those things squashed? right? Here's what we do, right? We look to Christ. We look to Christ and we trust in the power of the gospel to to temper these desires, instead fostering this desire for Christ, a knowledge of him and a worship of him, right? The, The cross of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus, and the conclusion of this prolonged plan of God to redeem all things unto himself, makes it clear, right, that that there is a cross before a crown, that the way of the Christian and the way of the faith is often difficult, that we are not unfamiliar with suffering. In fact, we ought to expect it as we see our temporal desires made to, to be squashed, embracing instead the work of Christ for you and I, committing now our lives to to him in faith as we turn from sin and trust entirely in the finished work of our king. This is where we are and this is where we finish. There's a warning, right? To connect with that character of Esau, to repent of our own need, uh, of our own sin and look to Christ for forgiveness. As we come to the table, let us remember these things um, as we close our time. We connect We're warned, we respond, the call is clear. What does that look like for you today? Let's pray.